Good morning. Good morning. It's good to have everyone here this morning. It's a, a little dreary or overcast or something or other, but it's, a, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Um, we have a couple of announcements here. Um, our business meeting to, uh, as most of you know, we have gotten the flooring to put uh, uh, samples of the flooring out back. And uh, so on Thursday, the 18th, which is not this coming Thursday, but the following Thursday, we'll be having our business meeting uh, to vote on the flooring um, that we're going to be putting down on the out, out back here and upstairs. And uh, so I want to make that announcement that uh, we will be having that business meeting. And so the question is, and I'll kind of run through it really briefly because I don't like to, anyways, um, the thought was that we would have, uh, most people are in agreement that we'll be having carpet upstairs and coming down the stairs. And then, uh, and then the question is whether we're going to have uh, a vinyl type uh, flooring, click laminate type flooring downstairs or carpeting. And uh, so that is the question. Uh, and so if you could take a look at the carpet out back and see what you think, if you have any ideas. And, um, and let's see, and I think that's it, except for we did, uh, we did end up uh, getting the sink installed in the bathroom out back. And so I think from what I understand, our, our plumbing and electrical things are done. And so I think one of the few things to be left to be done is some, uh, some painting and, uh, and then the flooring, and then we'll be pretty much done. So I just want to say thank you to everybody that's put in so much hard work over the last couple of years. Uh, every time I go out there, I marvel at, uh, at what the Lord has done and how gracious he is to us. Any other announcements this morning? Uh, Anyone? Any announcements? Ian. Good morning. I always love the day when Allison drops off the, the church mail on my table and I get to sort through it. And it's fun. You never know what, you, what you're going to find in there. And, uh, and we had an interesting piece of mail this, this week that I wanted to share with you. It's a, uh, uh, it's a legislative sentiment. Um, and it was signed, this is interesting, on the 21st day of May 2019. So that's the day this was issued, and it's, I won't explain the whole path of how it's been delayed, but it's finally showed up, um, and uh, I'll just read it. Be it known that all, that uh, we, the members of the Senate and House of Representatives, join in recognizing Liberty Baptist Church, which is celebrating its 175th anniversary in October of 2019. We extend our congratulations and best wishes and be it ordered that this official expression of sentiment be sent forthwith on behalf of the 129th legislature and the people of the state of Maine. So, happy birthday. Belated. And I just, I just, I just thought it really it should be Steve reading this from the pulpit. I know, I know he'd get a real kick out of this. So. I think it's only a year and a half off, but that's right. Better late than never. 
Yes, Jane, please. Amen. I had some. That's right. If if you need if if there if there become no more, then we'll probably we can get some more. I had a, a chance to uh, speak with somebody uh, that was in the uh, kitchen of our house a, a couple days ago, and he noticed the baby bottle sitting there. And I said, "Yeah, that's a, a ministry, a women's ministry from that we support at the church." And uh, so. All right, let's, uh, let's open this morning with a uh, word of prayer. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we can be here this morning, and that we can worship you, and that we can quiet our hearts. And we live such busy lives, and we're running from here to there and, and trying to make everything happen when it needs to, and we just get so busy, Lord. I pray that you'd help us this morning to... To, uh, that, you would, that you would quiet our hearts and that uh, we would be able to hear your words today. We pray that uh, you would just uh, give us the desire to serve you each and every day. And, and, uh, and we pray that everything that we do would be out of love for what, you, uh, for what you've done for us. So I pray that you would uh, bless this service and uh, we pray that you would give us unity here in our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Let's turn to number 36, and we'll sing, He is Exalted, and we'll sing it through a couple of times. Let's stand and sing number 36, and then we'll go right to uh, 705, It is Well with My Soul. Let's stand. Verses. 
seated. <clears throat> Amen. I was, uh, uh, I, was, I was going to have Dottie uh, uh, turn that down a notch as far as where the octave is there, whatever you call it. I was getting a, a little, uh, it's okay, it was in the middle, but I was getting a little dizzy there. <laughs> so, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, and now would the uh, men come forward for the morning offering, please.
Father, we thank you this morning for your many, many, many blessings to us in so many different ways. And we thank you for this church and for your many blessings here. And we thank you for the 175 years that this church has been here to serve you. We thank you for this offering this morning, Lord. We thank you for the uh, faithfulness of the people that have given. We pray that you would take it and bless it and use it, that your name would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. And remain standing, and we will turn to uh, number one in the uh, little handout, number one, Christ our hope in life and death. Does everyone have one of the little booklets? We've got some spares out back. Yell if you need one. It's number one, the first song, Christ Our Hope in Life and Death. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong who holds our days within his hand what comes apart from his command and what will keep us to the end the love of Christ in which we stand oh sing our hope in life and death what truth can calm the troubled soul God is good God is good where is his grace and goodness known in our great Redeemer's blood who holds our faith when fears arise who stands above the stormy trial who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore the rock of Christ oh sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal oh sing to the grave what shall we sing christ he lives christ he lives 
And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy. When Christ is ours forevermore. morning again church it's good to see you all here this morning <laughs> yeah always good to be seen isn't it it's one of those wonderful things about being a christian that we can be truly known fully known by god and yet still fully loved even, even those dark corners, everything, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet in Christ, loved, accepted, sons and daughters. It's amazing. Uh, we're going to spend some time now to go, go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, got a couple of, couple of prayer cards that came here in the, the offering. Any other prayer requests or praises to bring before the Lord? Allison. Your usual. All right. Sister Andrea. And we'll continue praying for you and Jim. Maureen. Okay. Carrie and, Al and Alan and Sammy. Ellen. Ellen. Okay, I'm sorry. Carrie and Ellen and Sammy on their way to California. Okay. We'll be praying for Maureen's family. Traveling mercies there. Yeah. I don't think we had a scripture reading. We didn't have our scripture reading today. <laughs> That's all right, Kevin. Why don't we'll we'll do that before we go to prayer. <laughs> Nancy. Amen. Yeah, for our nation, that God would bless and, and revive his people. Amen. Yes. Okay. Michael Fuller. 
who's having a hernia operation, so we'll be praying for him. Next two weeks sometime, okay. Uh, keep uh, keep Dean and Beth in your prayers. Dean's not with us this morning, still in a lot of back pain, and they're still trying to figure out what exactly is going on. So he, he told me yesterday they they saw something on the scan, and they don't know what, what it is, so they're going to do more scans this week. So please be praying for him and for Beth, and that that pain would subside. He's really not able to do much of anything at the moment. Um, so be, be praying for them. Donna. <laughs> All right. Starting to give it to the neighborhood. <laughs> I guess that's a good problem to have. All right. No more casseroles for the Millers. For the time being. You let us know when you need more. All right. Any other requests or praises? Christina. Amen. All right. So glad you're here, Christina, and that you're that you're feeling better. All right. Do I see any more hands? All right. Let's Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll begin by reading Psalm 147. Hey, one more prayer request. Oh, Russ. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Harbor Hill. Um, there's, I guess there's a, a number of cases uh, of COVID at the Harbor Hill re- uh, Retirement Center there in, ba- in Belfast. So we historically, before COVID hit, we'd had a, a monthly ministry of, of going there and um, and singing some hymns and, and sharing, a, sharing a short message. So be praying for them and for, um, for Harbor Hill. Let's, let's read Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. 
His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his steadfast love, his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob and his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you. We come to you this morning singing songs of praise because you are great and you are mighty. And, and Lord, we, we see your power just in the creation that you've made. We can discern, Lord, the beauty of your thoughts and the power of your arm by looking around us at, looking around us at the world. The beautiful snow that's fallen, Lord, and the power of the wind and of the ocean. All of this, Lord, is just in the, in the palm of your hand. So we give thanks to you this morning. We confess, Lord, as we come to you and ponder your greatness and your holiness. We confess that, that we're not holy, but we're sinners. We confess that in our, in our heart, in our minds, in our actions this week, we've sinned and done wrong. Consciously and unconsciously, Lord, we've, we've acted wickedly and rebelled and turned aside from your commandments and your rules, though we know them. We haven't listened to your word. We've rebelled against you and haven't obeyed the voice of you, our God. We confess now, silently, silently, Lord, as we come into your presence, or confess our sins and we confess all those things that you may be laying on our heart. We praise you, God, with the psalmist, that you do not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love towards those who fear you. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us in Christ. It is finished. It's forgiven for those of us who've come to you in faith. We thank you. Thank you for the compassion that you've shown to us as your children. We thank you for the assurance of forgiveness and adoption that we have in Christ's name. We come, Lord, to your throne with, uh, with a number of prayer, uh, prayers and requests and thanksgivings as well. We lift up uh, Dean to you, Lord, a faithful deacon here at our church. And we, we pray that you'd be with him and be with Beth as well. Um, pray that you'd bring healing to his body healing to his back, uh, that this pain would go away, that it would subside, Lord, whether you do that just with the snap of your finger right now or whether you do that, Lord, through the hands of the doctors as they continue to work with Dean this week. Pray, Lord, that you'd bring healing to his body. 
pray that the scans would show that this is something that's easily fixable, that this is something that's, um, that's simple. And Lord, in all things we, we say, your will be done. We thank you for the way that you, you've been working in Dean and Beth's lives over the years. And thank you for bringing them to, to know you. Thank you for their salvation. Pray that you continue to sustain them. Lord, we thank you for uh, Shirley and her presence with us this morning and that she's well after a fall this week. We pray that you continue to sustain her and help her. Um, keep her from falling, Lord. We pray, Lord, for Carrie and for Ellen and for Sammy who are traveling this week um, and uh, as members of Maureen's family. I pray that they'd be safe in their travels to California that they'd arrive there uh, safely. We pray for Michael Fuller, who's having a hernia operation. We pray that everything would go well with that, that you'd bless the hands of the doctors. Uh, pray that, Lord, you'd, uh, you'd give him uh, a sense of peace, that you'd, uh, you'd make your presence known with him, that he wouldn't be worried. And um, we, we pray, Lord, that you'd be with him in that. We thank you for the way that you're... Um, the way that you show your kindness to us through the kindness of your people. And we, we praise you especially, Lord, for the way that um, Donna and Herm have just been heaped with, with blessing uh, in the form of visits and in the form of casseroles and food and boiled dinners. And Lord, uh, just thank you. We praise you. And uh, pray that you continue to sustain Herm and Donna. Pray that... Uh, uh, you drain the fluid, Lord, from Herm's legs, that he'd continue to feel well enough uh, to be able to, to see us, Lord, when we come in and visit him. We thank you for uh, uh, the small group we were able to have at their house this week. What a blessing that was. Praise you, Lord, that Christina and Randy and the whole family is with us this morning. We thank you that Christina is feeling well enough to be with us. Lord, we, we thank you for Connie Dyer and the way she's uh, still a part of our, our church family, though she's not been able to be with us physically for some time now. We, we thank you for her kindness in, in making us a bunch of cloth masks and, uh, and uh, her heart, Lord, in, in doing that. We ask that you'd be with Russ Kavornin, Lord. He's got surgery coming up later this month. Pray that you'd be with him, that the, everything would go smoothly and well. He'd be restored to health soon. Pray for Deb Palmer, who's also having surgery later this month. Pray that you'd be with her, that that would all go smoothly. We ask your blessing on Harbor Hill, Lord. We know how tough it is when COVID hits a, a place like that. Pray that uh, you'd give wisdom to those who are in leadership there and that this, um, this out outbreak would be able to be stopped. And... Uh, uh, but it wouldn't spread any further than it has already. We do lift up our nation. We ask that um, you'd be at work. So many of the troubles in our nation are a direct result of rebellion against you. Um, we're a nation that in many ways has turned its back on you and forgotten your word and, and in many ways walks in direct opposition to your word. 
So we ask, Father, that you'd bring uh, revival. And we know, Lord, that when you bring revival, what it looks like is repentance. We pray that you'd do a mighty work in our nation, in our state, in our community, in our generation, that you'd send your spirit and power, that you'd empower your church, Lord, to communicate the gospel faithfully, and that many would, would see their sin and see Jesus as their great Savior and turn to him and follow him. We pray for a revival of repentance, Lord. Pray that it would start with us. Pray that it would go out, out from here. We don't know what your plan is for our nation and this generation. We pray that whatever happens, you'd show us how to be faithful. We desire revival, Lord, but whatever may come, we're gonna follow you, whether it's revival in our generation or judgment on this nation in our generation. We ask that you prepare us, Lord, to face whatever may come. We'd be faithful to the name. We ask that you grant us by the power of your spirit to walk as children of light. You teach us to discern what's pleasing to you. We don't want to walk as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We don't want to be drunk with wine. We want to be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to you, our God, in our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to you, our Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his wonderful and matchless name. Amen. The text we're going to be studying this morning together is in Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses. In our journey through Mark, we've followed along uh, with Jesus and his disciples through his ministry in Galilee, and we've seen he's demonstrated both in words and in deeds that he is the Messiah, right, the chosen one of God. And in Mark 8, we saw that the disciples finally got it, right? Peter finally confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ. And in the last two weeks, we've hit a turning point. Jesus, having led his disciples to see him for who he is, is now turning to the cross, knowing that he had come to live, but also to die. And our passage this morning is is somewhat jaw-dropping. So let's jump right into it, and then we'll ask God's blessing again over our time together in his word. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Mark chapter 9, and uh, as usual, I'll be reading here at the beginning of the sermon out of the NIV, which is in your pew Bibles. Um, just to keep it confusing, I'll be preaching out of a different translation, so don't, don't be confused by that. Mark chapter 9, first 13 verses. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power, come with power. 
After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it, was, it is written about him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, just as you revealed your glory to Peter and James and John up on the mountain, we ask that you would reveal Jesus to us this morning in your word. Amaze us with your Son. Your word is powerful and your spirit is here among us. We just ask that you would have your way with us this morning. Soften our hearts to hear your word and to respond to it rightly. Strengthen our hearts to hear and to obey in whatever ways you lead. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I can remember when, uh, when Miranda and I first started dating, and we were working together uh, at the time at a, at a restaurant, and there was a real difference, I can remember, between how I listened to my other coworkers and how I listened to Miranda. <laughs> if my other coworkers spoke to me, I would respond, hopefully in a friendly way. But when Miranda spoke, <laughs> even if she was all, all the way on the other side of the room, I started listening. She was the most interesting person in the world. Question. Do we listen to Jesus? When Jesus speaks, do our ears perk up? Is Jesus the most interesting person in the room? Maybe that you're here this morning and you find Jesus somewhat irrelevant. And frankly, you're gearing up to tune out whatever you're going to hear in the next 40 minutes. As I look around the room, I know most of you aren't in that place. I see a group of people who've been following Jesus for a long time, right? You read your Bible, you come to church, you, you're in a habit of listening to Jesus. And I want to encourage us this morning, as we continue to follow Jesus, 
to, to listen to Jesus in the way we live our lives. I want to refresh in us this morning an understanding of exactly who Jesus is so that we'll continue to hang on his every word. I want to make the case this morning from our text that wherever you find yourself as you make your way through life, Jesus will always be the most interesting person in the room. Jesus is always worth listening to, and that's because of who he is. This is our big idea this morning. Jesus is the beloved son of God who set his face towards the cross so you should listen to him. Jesus is the beloved son of God who set his face towards the cross, so you should listen to him. That's not just my idea. I think that's what this text teaches us. We're going to pick up on our journey through Mark with Jesus and the disciples, and we're going to split this passage into three bite-sized parts. A lot happens here, so it's going to be kind of a whirlwind to get through it all and to understand it all. We're going to see Jesus do basically three things. First, Jesus promised the kingdom. Then Jesus revealed his glory. And finally, Jesus explained his suffering. Promised the kingdom, revealed his glory, explained his suffering. So we'll start where we should, at the beginning, where Jesus promised his kingdom. Jesus promised his kingdom. We'll start in verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. It's interesting to note how Jesus begins this statement with his famous phrase, truly I say to you. The more you read the Gospels, the more you realize this phrase is constantly tripping off of Jesus' lips. He's constantly saying, truly, truly I say to you. But it's not just a verbal filler. Truly, I say to you, is actually a serious thing for Jesus to say. And that's because, as you search the rest of Scripture, no other human teacher ever uses that phrase. Think about it, right? When the, when the Old Testament prophets taught, they would maybe start their, their teaching by saying something like, hear the word of the Lord, or this is the word of God, right? This is what God is speaking through me. Prophets like that don't, don't speak on their own authority. They speak as one under authority, right? One sent by God. God is saying this to you through me. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, truly, I say to you. Jesus spoke on his own authority. No one had ever done that before. The only person who does that in the Old Testament is God. When God would speak, he would say, I swear by myself. God speaks on his own authority because there's, there's no higher authority to appeal to, right? God is God. And what's amazing about Jesus here, as we see through the, through the whole gospel, right? Jesus talks like he's God. He speaks on his own authority because Jesus is God. He's the eternal divine son, so he can speak on his own authority. And in that authority, saying, truly I say to you, he made the disciples a promise. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come 
with power. And that, that promise follows on cleanly from the previous passage. Last week, we looked at Jesus' caution to his disciples, right? He was saying, if you follow me, it's going to end up costing your lives. And 10 of those 11 faithful disciples that were there eventually did go on to die for their faith, right? Like we said last week. But before they would go on to die, Jesus makes them a promise, right? He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who are not going to taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Guys, you're all going to face death because of my name, but be on the lookout. Some of you right here will actually see the kingdom of God after it has come in power before your lives are taken. So then the question becomes, what exactly did Jesus mean that they would see the kingdom of God after it had come in power? And this is a debated question. So um, as I'm reading the, the relevant literature this week, it's different people disagree on exactly what Jesus meant here. Some people, scholars I really respect, believe that Jesus was actually predicting his transfiguration. That he was promising the disciples, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God after it's come in power, and that actually meant just what we read, about being up on the mountain with the disciples. Um, it's a respectable position, but I don't quite buy that. Um, because of how Jesus puts it, right? He says, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. It seems to imply they might actually have a chance to die. I mean, he was right. They were still alive the next day, but it's a pretty overdramatic way of saying some of you are going to see the kingdom in power tomorrow. And, and other scholars, and I would, I would take this view, would take a longer view. Think about the kingdom, right? Jesus says, you're going to see the kingdom after it's come in power. And consider Jesus' words right at the beginning of his ministry. The first thing out of his mouth when he starts his public teaching. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in one sense, the kingdom of God was already there, near enough to touch Right? Jesus was the king and he'd come into the world. But Jesus was looking forward to a time and speaking to the disciples that the kingdom would come in power, right? The kingdom had come in part, but it was also still coming, right? There was, there was more to come. If you think about the rest of the story, right? In winning the kingdom, King Jesus had a lot of work to do, right? King Jesus still had to powerfully win the victory over sin on the cross. Talk about the kingdom coming in power. He still had to powerfully win the victory over death in his resurrection. He still had to powerfully demonstrate his absolute authority in his ascension, right? Seated at the right hand of the Father. And from there, he still had to powerfully send the Spirit to the New Testament Christians, to advance the kingdom of God in power. So, though Christ's kingdom was close enough to touch for these disciples, there was still a lot of power yet to be experienced. And, and all of it would be experienced during these disciples' lifetimes, right? 
in all of the events that the disciples were about to witness surrounding Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and the coming of the Spirit, the disciples were going to see the coming of the kingdom in power at every turn. So some scholars pick one and say, it's, it's the crucifixion Jesus is talking about, or it's the resurrection, or it's the ascension, or it's the coming of the Spirit. And I, I don't feel the, the need to choose. I think Jesus is, is telling them, you're going you're gonna to die for your faith, but don't worry. You're, you're not going to miss out on this, guys. You may die as martyrs, but you will for sure see kingdom power on this earth before you do. Just wait. You be on the watch. So I think, I think that's the kind of comfort that he's providing his disciples here. You may disagree, and that's fine. So we've seen first, Jesus promised the kingdom. Jesus promised the kingdom. The disciples were assured, you will see the kingdom in power. Second thing Jesus does, this is kind of the, the climax of the passage, right? Jesus revealed his glory. He revealed his glory. Verse 2, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. If you've been here all, the, all along, you'll remember that Jesus has taken the disciples on hiking trips before. Um, Jesus took the 12 disciples up on a mountain to appoint them as apostles. We looked at that passage. We, we noted that, that mountains hold an important symbolic weight in the Bible. Right? When God brings people up a mountain, he's not just going to throw a tea party. The, the great men of God, right? think about Moses and Elijah, both of those great prophets had had mountaintop experiences, right? Where they were up on a mountain and they experienced the presence of God and the revelation of God like nowhere else. God makes a, a habit of revealing himself to people on, on mountains as we look through scripture. And that's, that's exactly what was about to happen. In a similar way, up on this mountain, these three disciples were going to see with shocking clarity that there was more to Jesus than met the eye. Jesus walked the earth incognito. To the naked eye, he looked like any other man. But up on the mountain, those three men were going to see his unveiled glory. Moses and Elijah experienced powerful mountaintop revelations of God's presence in their days. And Peter, James, and John were going to experience God's presence in theirs. But this time, they were going to see the face of God revealed in the face of their rabbi, Jesus. On the mountain, Jesus pulled back the veil and showed these men his glory. And Jesus revealed his glory on the mountain in, in, th in three ways. His changed appearance, his illustrious companions, and his heavenly endorsement. So first, his changed appearance, second half of verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured, which just means that his appearance changed. Mark is sparing with his details, but both Matthew and Luke in their accounts of this event both tell us that his, Jesus' face actually began to shine. His, his appearance became more brilliant, and not just his face, verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. 
This was not just the result of a laundry accident. Jesus shone with a light that could have no earthly origin. Just seeing the light of Jesus' face should have clued his disciples in that they were dealing with the presence of God. Think back to the book of Exodus. Remember Moses, right? Whenever he'd go up the mountain to be in the presence of God, he'd come down and his face was shining. He had to put a veil over it so the people weren't blinded. Jesus' face radiated that same light, the light of the presence of God. The disciples were seeing a light which had not been seen since the days of Moses. Jesus' glory, God's glory in Jesus, was revealed. First, by his changed appearance, but also by his illustrious companions. Verse 4, there appeared to him Uh, to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, this this must have been astounding to the disciples, right? Elijah and Moses. These, These are like the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, and they were long since dead. But in the blink of an eye, Elijah and Moses were there hanging out with them on the mountain with Jesus, The disciples probably wouldn't have recognized Elijah and Moses. They'd never seen Elijah and Moses. So they must have been introduced, presumably by Jesus. I'd like to imagine how that went down. Uh, Peter, James, and John, this is uh, Elijah and Moses. (laughs) These, These Galilean fishermen had spent a lifetime of Sabbaths hearing the stories of Moses and, of, and Elijah, and all of a sudden, here they are. Moses and Elijah weren't just minor players in the history of Israel. These are two of the greatest prophets in the whole of the Old Testament. And yet here they were before their very eyes talking with Jesus on the mountain. And the presence of these great prophets signaled something to the disciples. This is a demonstration that Jesus wasn't just some minor footnote in God's plan. Moses and Elijah, the great prophets of the Old Testament, come and show up to Jesus and pay homage to Jesus. Jesus wasn't just some minor footnote, some minor prophet. No, Jesus had come as the ultimate fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament prophets had promised. Moses and Elijah weren't there to show any of their power. They were just there as witnesses, there to point to Jesus and to say, he's the one. He is the glorious fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had promised. It's amazing. And put yourself in Peter's shoes. Peter's the one we get some insight into here. Picture the scene, right? Jesus is standing there blazing like the sun with Moses and Elijah on either side. And they were there paying homage. Moses and Elijah paying homage to Peter's rabbi, who he's been like casually hanging out with for the last year. So Peter's standing there, terrified, probably with his hands in his pockets, his knees knocking together. And and Peter did what any man does when he's faced with an overwhelming situation. He tried to make himself useful. Verse 5. 
Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good, it's good, that, it's good that we're here. Um, let's, let's make three tents. Um, we can make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And verse six, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. There's a lot of speculation about the, like some symbolism behind the tents here. The, the word tent is the same Greek word that's used um, to talk about the, the Feast of Booths. Um, the, the Jews constructed these, these little, um, little structures made out of palm branches for a particular feast. Um, it was like they're, uh, a, a yearly camp out for Israel. Think about kind of like the first century equivalent of an easy up. I'm not convinced that there's any spiritual significance to Peter's suggestion here. There's lots of speculation. What do the tents mean? Does this mean somehow Peter was doubting? Um, We're actually told exactly what Peter's motive was. He was terrified, and he didn't know what to say. He's just babbling. What do you do when you're surrounded by people vastly more significant than you? In humility, you you try to get busy, (laughs) find something to do. But Peter didn't get a chance to get his hands busy because one final sign was going to reveal Jesus' glory to the disciples, right? So there's three signs up on the mountain. His changed appearance, his illustrious companions, and third, his heavenly endorsement. His heavenly endorsement. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. A cloud overshadowed them. These clouds should be reminiscent to you if you've, ever read the book of Exodus. Lots of Exodus imagery here in this passage. Remember when God broke the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he brought them into the promised land, and he led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, right? And he actually spoke out of the, the, the cloud. For years, uh, during the Exodus, God actually spoke to his people through this cloud, and they were terrified of it. Up on the mountain, when Moses went up into the presence of God, the cloud descended on the mountain. But for years, Israel had gone without, first of all, without true prophecy. There hadn't been prophets showing up and speaking the word of God in Jesus' day, let alone a direct communication from the Almighty. But here on the mountain, to three fishermen, The God of Abraham, of Moses, of Elijah broke his silence and spoke again with the clearest possible message. Cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In the blaze of glory on that mountaintop, the disciples' belief that Jesus was the Messiah was confirmed by the very voice of God. Here at last was the the sign from heaven that the Pharisees were asking for a few weeks ago, remember? In scorn, they requested a light show from heaven to prove that Jesus was really the Messiah. But God will not be mocked, and the Pharisees received no sign. But Peter and James and John did. When Peter was finally able to see with eyes of faith, finally able to admit in the previous chapter that Jesus was the Messiah, only then were he and Jesus' closest disciples able to witness the sign from heaven. 
which confirms the father's love and endorsement of his son. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. My beloved son. My beloved son. Not only does Christ bear the approval of God the Father as a prophet, right? He doesn't say, doesn't say this is the prophet that I sent. He said, this is my beloved son. Jesus is the Father's divine son. In the mystery of the Trinity, God has existed from all eternity in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there on the mountain, God bore witness that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son who has existed from all eternity even before the stars were born. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, the Apostle Paul meditates on the on this Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When God the Father said, this is my beloved son, he was speaking of his eternal son. Jesus was and is not merely another prophet of God like Moses or Elijah. He's the divine son. He's God himself in human form. This is my beloved son. And then a command. This is my beloved son. This is what I want you to do with him. Listen to him. Listen to him. The point of this show of glory on the mountain was simple, to call the disciples to listen to Jesus, to hear his words and believe them and obey them. Know for certain that this Jesus, he's my beloved son. He speaks on behalf of me, the almighty God. So listen up. The same is true for us today, isn't it? Jesus is the beloved Son of God, so you should listen to him. We, we aren't witnesses to the transfiguration. We weren't up there on the mountain with Peter and James and John. But it is just as important for us that we listen to the words of the beloved Son of God. In some ways, it's more important. It's easy to forget Jesus' divine glory and authority when we haven't been confronted firsthand with that visual display. Practically, what does this look like? Listen to him. Listen to him. One thing we need to understand is that when we pick up this book, when we read the words of Jesus... We are reading the words of the very Son of God. Do we get that? The God who made the universe, who rules history, who upholds the universe at every moment, who gives us our every breath, pointed to Jesus and says, listen to him. Are we listening? So many people talk about wanting to... Um, understand the meaning of the universe 
right, or the purpose of their lives. What's it all about at the end of the day? Here's the thing. God himself, the creator of all things, has actually spoken into the world and told us through Christ. The mighty God took on human form and walked this earth, and his words are in this book. You want to know what life is all about? What you're all about? Listen to Jesus. Friends, for those of us who are Christians, knowing this should refresh our love for the words of Jesus. Let's let's be resolved today not to let ourselves get bored with the Bible. Let's not let ourselves get bored with Jesus. 2,000 years after his mountaintop transfiguration, Jesus is still the beloved eternal Son of God. He's still the most interesting person in the room. So let's, let's keep hanging on his every word. Let's keep taking every opportunity to dig into his word. Let's be the kind of Christians who sneak a moment here and there throughout the day, throughout the week, not to hear what our friends are saying on social media, not to hear what the pundits are saying on TV, but to, to, to fit in every little crack of time that we can find time to hear the words of the beloved son of God to listen to him to believe him to obey him to to take a moment to crack open the most amazing book in the world and to read again the words of our amazing savior Jesus it may be that you're here and you're not a believer and you you don't really spend that much time thinking about Jesus's words Maybe you don't even like what Jesus says. A lot of people don't. A lot of people reject the Bible because they don't want to listen to Jesus. Of course, we know it's obvious. Just because you don't like what someone says doesn't mean they're not telling the truth. Don't dismiss Jesus because you don't like what he says. You're actually not the one speaking with divine authority from the Father. As humans, we, we get things wrong, right? We're not perfect. We're fallible. We get things wrong a lot. So it's pretty much a guarantee, even if you were just think about it in a kind of a theoretical way. It's, if you were to imagine a situation where where you met someone who knew the whole truth, who knew everything that's true in the whole universe, we would probably have to find ourselves making some adjustments to our understandings, right? Because we don't know everything. We're limited and we're flawed. Our perspectives are skewed. So when we meet Jesus, the one who knows all things, the one who made the world, the one who actually determines the purpose for the world and our purpose, we're probably going to have to correct ourselves. Jesus is going to have to correct us. So it shouldn't be surprising if you're not a Christian, come to the Bible and see, I don't agree with all of this. It's not Jesus that's wrong, it's, it's us that's wrong. 
when we come to that point. The problem is not with Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. If you find yourself taking issue with him, consider this. Jesus might be right and you might actually be the one who's wrong. God, our creator, has spoken. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. How will we respond? Jesus is the beloved son of God, so we should listen to him. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It ended as suddenly as it began. Elijah and Moses and the shining garments and the voice from heaven were not intended to accompany Jesus on a permanent basis. The divine Son of God lived most of his earthly life humbly, with glory hidden. Moments like the transfiguration gave Jesus' followers a glimpse, right? a little glimpse into the glory of the Son, the glory that he laid down to live his life as a human I said at the beginning that we'd split this passage into three bite-sized parts. So we've, we've looked at the first two, right? Jesus promised the kingdom. Jesus revealed his glory. And finally, we're going to see that Jesus explained his suffering. Jesus explained his suffering. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Again, here, to those who got an inkling of who Jesus was, Jesus cautioned secrecy. We've seen this over and over again throughout the Gospel of Mark. And this was a very practical thing for Jesus to do. The Jews believed that when Messiah came, he would be a military ruler and take back Israel by force. Um, if, if you looked over in John's, chap, John's Gospel, chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, John records that the mood of the crowd was so excited that they actually would have taken Jesus by force and made him king. John 6, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They wanted to coronate Jesus after he'd fed them dinner. Imagine what they would have done if they knew he had appeared in glory with Moses and Elijah. If word got out too quickly, zealous Jews would have elevated him to the position of king too quickly, and he would have found himself facing the hatred of the Jewish leaders and the Roman government before the time was right. Jesus did come to die at the hands of those men. Eventually he did. A few weeks from now when we celebrate Palm Sunday, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem and there's people hailing him as the Messiah, hailing him as the king. And at that moment of peak publicity, that's when Jesus was killed. But the time wasn't come yet, so Jesus cautioned. After the resurrection, after the resurrection, you can go public with all this. He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It's very practical advice, and Jesus understood it all, but the disciples did not. The disciples still didn't understand what Jesus meant about his death and his resurrection. Verse 10, 
So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They're still scratching their heads. What, what, is, what is Jesus doing? He keeps talking about death and resurrection. But they were too embarrassed to ask and expose their ignorance. They just kind of discussed it amongst themselves. So when it finally came to actually ask Jesus a question, they asked a seemingly unrelated question about Elijah, right? They'd just seen Elijah up on the mountain. Verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? I think the disciples thought this was a more intelligent-sounding question. This is a popular teaching at the time. We've talked about the idea before, right? The Jews believed that before Messiah came, Elijah had to come first. And this is right out of, right out of Scripture. Malachi 4, verse 5, right at the end of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Messiah is coming. Elijah comes first. And the disciples wanted to know, why do they teach that? What, is, there, is there something to that, Jesus? After all, we, we just saw Elijah up on the mountain. And Jesus went on, in, in a way that he only can, to answer both of their questions. The question they were pondering in their hearts, why does Jesus keep talking about his death? And the question they'd asked about Elijah. So he answers this in a very clever way. The wording's a bit confusing in Mark's account, but we'll go through it. Here's his answer, verse 12. He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written? How is it that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So Jesus says, yes, Elijah does have to come. The scribes and the Pharisees are right. Elijah has to come before Messiah. And he says, in fact, Elijah has already come. And he points, actually not to Elijah on the mountain, but to John the Baptist. And Mark's, uh, Matthew's account is a little clearer here on this point. But Jesus is identifying Elijah's return with, with the coming of John the Baptist. Elijah had already come even before the mountaintop transfiguration. John the Baptist was, was the Elijah-type prophet in the wilderness. He fulfilled the same office as Elijah did. Right? The, the prophet out there in the wilderness crying for repentance to a rebellious people. So that's the answer to the Elijah question. Yes, Elijah has to come first, and he did. It's John the Baptist. But then he uses, so clever, he uses John's ministry as a way of showing his disciples what he meant about all this talk about dying and resurrection. Notice Jesus' rhetorical question here. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? That was the disciples' unspoken question, right? Jesus, son of man, how is it that you're supposed to suffer and die? Messiah's not supposed to die. 
It was the question they'd been wrestling with ever since Jesus had told them in the previous chapter that he had to die. And the answer comes in coded form in verse 13. But I tell you that Elijah has come and, listen carefully, they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. John the Baptist came as the new Elijah and they killed him. They did to him whatever they pleased. Remember back in chapter 6, we covered this, right? King Herod killed John. And Jesus is saying, guys, in the same way, Elijah came first and he was killed. Messiah comes, he's going to be killed too. Why is it that the Son of Man must suffer many things? Just look at John. If they killed the forerunner, they'll certainly kill the Messiah. Matthew records an expanded version of this conversation. It's helpful in, in understanding it. I'll just, I'll just read it here. Matthew 17 Verses 11 through 12. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Even after his glorious transfiguration on the mountain, Jesus' face was still set towards the cross. The beloved Son of God, the heir of glory, the prince of the universe, walked down the mountain with his disciples and explained, I have to die. The Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Up on the mountain, God the Father revealed the glory of Jesus to the disciples so they would listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Right? The glory of Jesus, the great glorious grandeur of Jesus should cause us to listen to him. But friends, that's not the only reason we should listen to Jesus. The glorious Jesus who's shown on the mountain is the same Jesus who walked down the mountain minutes later humbly explaining why he had to die. Jesus set his face in humility towards the cross. And he did it for lost, broken, sinful people like us. We should listen to Jesus because he's the, the glorious, beloved Son of God, but we should also listen to Jesus because he set his face towards the cross. Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul tells us this. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that death was not pointless, it was not senseless, it was not an accident of history. Jesus, God the Son, died in obedience to God the Father for a purpose. To die in the place of sinners, to die the death that only sinners deserve in our place so that we could be reconciled to God through him. Paul writes elsewhere, meditating on these things, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The disciples didn't fully understand it yet, but Jesus' face was set towards the cross out of love for sinners like us. In love, Jesus set his face towards the cross. So, you should listen to him. We should pay attention to what Jesus says, not just because of his glory, but because of his love and his humility. He poured out his heart and his life for the lost, broken, suffering, sinful world, for people like us. He came into the earth full of glory, but with a a heart warm with love to a broken world. And his heart is warm towards us still. The glorious, loving Jesus, the Son of God who went to the cross, has spoken. Who else is more worth listening to? And if we become people who are aware of, really awake to the glory of Jesus and the love of Jesus, I promise you, you won't just be casually interested in what Jesus has to say. If if we become really awake to the glory and the love of Jesus, we will become people who continually seek out his word like homing missiles going again and again to scripture, longing to know what this Jesus has to say to us. Because when we get our arms around, really get our arms around his glory and his love, he will become the most interesting person in the world. We'll long to spend just a moment in his presence, just a moment in his word. We'll hang on his every word. Jesus is the beloved son of God who set his face towards the cross so you should listen to him. We're going to celebrate now the Lord's Supper as a church body. So if I could have Kevin come forward. Um, This is a wonderful celebration. The Lord's Supper is a gift from Jesus. And it's a gift that reminds us of what we've just spoken about, of the the glowing heart of Jesus towards sinners like us. So this communion table is Jesus's ongoing object lesson to teach us how sufficient Jesus' work on the cross really is for those who come to him in faith. Weary, sinful people like us can come to the table and By faith, Jesus' broken body and shed blood will satisfy the deepest longings of our soul, right? Better than a Thanksgiving feast. And by faith in him, not by the physical eating, right, but inwardly, by faith in him, his death becomes ours. He died in our place. His body was broken for us. Our sins are placed on him, and in him we're welcomed back into fellowship with God. His broken body, his shed blood, reconcile us to God. In Christ, we're welcome back to the table. Amen? All right, let's see here. The, um,
the Lord's Supper is, is open to everyone who's confessed faith in Jesus Christ. And if that's you, if you're a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, you're, you're welcome at this table. If that's not you, know that this table is open to anyone who would come to Jesus in faith. And if that's you, if you'd like to pursue a relationship with God, you want to put your faith in Jesus, but you haven't yet, talk to me, talk to Kevin, talk to pretty much any person in this room. We'd be happy to talk to you about, about what that looks like to become a Christian. But for now, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, we'd ask that you refrain from eating and drinking at the table. Paul warns in his letter to the Corinthians that whoever eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is a really joyful celebration for us, but we also really take it quite seriously. of the Holy Spirit be with you all.